Good morning, church. Good morning. My name is Jeff. If I haven't met you yet, I would love a chance to get to meet you this morning. I'm excited to get to preach this morning and to bring the Word of God. Uh, would you join me in prayer so we can ask God for help in that? Father, our desire this morning is to worship you. We've been uh, worshiping you in song and in our prayers and in our attention, and I ask God that you would help us to continue to worship you as we hear your word to do so with reverence and attention. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and each person here who's listening with your spirit as well. Lord, would you take your word and apply it to each of our hearts in a way that only you can uniquely accomplish? We pray all of that in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're going to continue the Lenten series that Jay began last week on spiritual practices of abstinence. That is, that we look to intentionally abstain from things, to stop doing some things. But this abstaining from things is not an end in and of itself. Like the abstaining from food from fasting last week is not actually the goal. We are actually after something much more rich, much deeper, and much more life-giving than just abstaining from things. We are after Christ. The goal or end that we have in mind is Christ. To be with Him, to enjoy Him, to experience His life, His power in our everyday lives. We just spent weeks focused on just three chapters, right? John 15, John 16, 17, where Jesus was preparing his followers for a time in which he was going to depart and not physically be right next to them anymore. And in this preparation, he was getting them ready for what would it look like to continue to remain in him and abide in him when he was not there physically with them. He taught them and he promised them and he promises us that he would abide in them and that they could abide in him and we can abide in him. They could make their home in him and remain connected to him in the same way as a flourishing branch on a vine gets all of its nourishment and nutrients and life from the vine. We are intended to abide in Christ, to receive everything that we need for life and obedience to him through him continually not just occasionally and once in a while. That branch on the vine is drawing from the vine continually in order to be fruitful. And Jesus promised that life-giving, sustaining presence in other places as well. One of my favorites is the last sentence in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, I will be with you always, or I am with you always to the end of the age. And as I've meditated on that promise and the promise of being able to abide, Two things came to mind this week that I just want to share briefly this morning. One, this life of abiding and being connected to Christ is real and tangible, not just theoretical. It's, it's something that is meant to be experienced in Christ. And then two, this life of abiding and being connected to Jesus is mysterious. We don't control how we experience it. We can't precisely explain how it works. There's no mathematical formula that we use to ensure that we're experiencing the maximum amount of Christ each day. It's a mystery. And as we pursue that, or 
really better yet, as we receive that kind of life from Christ, I think we do well to hold those two truths in tension. One, that it's real and tangible and solid and meant to be experienced, but also two, it's mysterious. We don't know exactly how it works, but we do know that He is with us. And that's where these spiritual practices of abstinence come in that we're talking about through Lent. These practices are meant to be means through which we position ourselves to abide in Christ. They're intentional actions that we take to enjoy a life of connection, a life of living with our very present Jesus. And last week, Jay kicked us off with fasting. If you haven't had a chance to hear that one yet, it's on our website, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to it to learn more about what would fasting, what would it have to do with abiding? And Jay makes those connections for us. This week, we're going to focus on the spiritual practice of secrecy. The spiritual practice of secrecy. Now, to talk about secrecy or to use that word, it evokes a number of images potentially in your mind. You might be thinking of spies in dark rooms communicating in code. You might be thinking of some sort of conspiracy that's being developed in dark corners. Maybe for you it evokes ideas that are painful, like being manipulated, some sort of abuse or some sort of isolation and being separate from people because of secrets. Well, you'll you'll see shortly that the type of secrecy that we're talking about this morning is very different than those. There is a sense in which when we engage in secrecy and these other practices we'll talk about, when we engage in them, we do engage and participate in a divine plot. A divine plot to set all things right. To renew all of creation and to remove all of evil, all of the anti-creation forces from it. One philosopher called this the divine conspiracy. The divine conspiracy to overcome evil with good. In a very real, real way, when we, by the power of the Spirit of God, practice fasting or secrecy or silence or solitude and the others that we're talking about, we engage in subversive activities that have the potential to, again, this is all by God's Spirit at work, bring about radical transformation in our lives. Transformation that happens in here and then it ripples out into other lives around us. And it's part of how we participate with God in how he's overcoming evil with good in the world. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Conformity to this world, being squeezed into its mold, is not what God has for those who are following Jesus. It's not a real, real option for an apprentice of Jesus. For those who call Christ Lord and know he is king of all. Instead, nonconformity to this world. And transformation into the image of Christ is our goal and it's our end. We were made for a life that orbits around Christ, with him at the center of all things, calibrated to his ways, his ways of action in the world, but also to this morning we'll talk about his internal ways, his heart, his motivations, and his character. All of those get to become ours in him. My desire this morning is to show that a wise, spirit-empowered practice of secrecy will, over time, enable us to train to take steps 
to center our whole lives upon Christ in that way. And so learn from Him those outward actions, but also the internal disposition of Christ. So what is it, though? What is secrecy? What do I have in mind? So the best and clearest thinking that I have ever encountered on it is from author Dallas Willard in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines. It's a book worth picking up. Paraphrasing him, secrecy is the intentional practice of not causing our good deeds or qualities to be known. The intentional practice of not causing our good deeds or qualities to be known. So in secrecy, we abstain from announcing our goodness, our righteousness to other people. And in some cases, that would also mean taking proactive steps to prevent others from knowing the good that we've done. Of course, in preventing a good work from being done, we only do so if it doesn't involve deceit in some way. We don't lie to others in order that our good deeds are unknown by them. Instead, we simply and intentionally abstain from active promotion and advertisement of the good that we're up to. This practice runs very contrary to the habits that most of us developed as we just live in this world. Our instinct is to hide our faults and display our goodness. We hide our faults because we're ashamed of them or people wouldn't approve of them or our faults wouldn't get us what we want in the world. But our goodness often does get us what we want in the world. To be clear, there is a sense in which, in a way in which, secrets can be sinful. If what we mean is covering up evil, abuse, or manipulation of others, those things are not meant to be hidden but brought into the light for there to be healing, for wrongs to be righted. But this morning we're talking about something entirely different than that. We're talking about goodness being hidden in secret. With secrecy, our goal isn't to become some anonymous follower of Jesus who is just unknown by everyone around us. Being in relationship with others where we're truly known, where they know what we're up to, is a gift. It's a really, really good thing that Jesus intends for us. So when we practice secrecy, we're not seeking to be unknown or anonymous in some way. Rather, we're just intentionally allowing our spiritual practices or our goodness to not be trumpeted, to not be announced, to not be put right in front of others. It allows us to truly be rather than to merely appear. The practice of secrecy allows us to truly be rather than to appear. With fasting, last week we abstained from food for a period of time for a specific reason, to seek God, to be connected with Him in prayer. In our desire, in our hunger, in our need for Him, we even go without food in fasting. With secrecy, what are we going without? We intentionally go without the praise and reward that others would give us if they saw the good that we did. We go without that. This reward might be honor, it might be reputation, it might be some sort of identity that we've crafted, whether it's genuine or not, that's not the point. For example, an identity where we're known for being a generous person. Again, not because we are a generous person, but because we've taken steps to ensure that others see us that way. We'll see in a minute that that's one of the examples that Jesus gives us in his teaching 
on secrecy. Let's, let's do that. Let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. I want to look at Jesus' teaching and how he fleshes this out for his first followers. Matthew chapter 6, we'll start with just 6 verse 1, which is Jesus' teaching on secrecy in a sentence. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This is a warning from Jesus to his followers in the middle of his famous Sermon on the Mount. With this warning, he's going deep. He's diving in to the deeper areas of the human heart. He's getting at motives that are underneath our actions, that prop our actions up and cause them. An important phrase in this is practicing your righteousness. Here, Jesus is getting at goodness. Practicing your righteousness is goodness. It's any good deed that is done in love and service to God. Jesus' teaching then in this sentence is to be careful, to pay attention to be on guard, that we don't do our good deeds that are meant to be done in service for God actually in order to be seen by other people. Or in other words, a good deed that appears to be done for God ought to really be done for God. For God rather than the applause or the approval of other human beings. Another important phrase in this sentence is in order to be seen. That one is key if we're going to get what Jesus is saying here. Because just a chapter earlier, he said this, Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works. Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is not saying that it's a sin for others to notice the good that you do, the good that's in your life as a result of him. In fact, spirit-empowered good works are meant to bring glory to God. The issue at hand is a deed done in order that it would be seen by others. Again, this is getting at heart-level motivations. Presumably, the person seeking accolades from other people is not seeking the glory of God at the same time, or at least in the way that Jesus would have us do. But why is this so important? The reason Jesus gives is that by seeking reward from humans, we forfeit reward from our Father in heaven. We exchange a reward that is truly for our good for a lesser reward that will lead us away from God and make us more and more self-focused. If our good deed isn't really done for God, but rather for the praise and adoration of humans, then we'll get our reward from humans, but we forfeit the reward from God. Jesus gives us three examples then following this verse of how this plays out, and I want to read through them together here. The first is charitable giving or almsgiving. This is Matthew 6, starting in verse 2. Jesus says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be seen and praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The next one is prayer. This is Matthew 6, starting in verse 5. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. 
But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The last one Jesus gives us is in fasting. You skip down a little bit past the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, starting in verse 16, it says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So we're not going to go into the minutiae of those details this morning that Jesus gave us, but even without doing that, without going into all those historical details, it's clear that Jesus is addressing good deeds that are done for show. Sounding a trumpet when you're giving to the needy. Making a huge fuss in places that are very public when you are praying or intentionally disfiguring your face in some way so that others will know that you are fasting, all resulted in the same reward for those people, being seen and recognized by others as devoutly and seriously religious. After all, that was the intention behind those actions to begin with. Human acknowledgement was sought and human acknowledgement was received. With each example, Jesus says basically the exact same thing, and I made a composite statement here of it so we can see it, how he repeats himself. But he says, because they did their good deed, giving, prayer, fasting, in order to be seen by others, they have received their reward. But you do your good deed in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Well, one response to these examples might just be a shrug. <laughs> and the thought, I don't do that. I haven't pulled out a trumpet at all, ever you know, before I've given anything, and I don't stand up in front of people to pray to be seen by them. So maybe for some of us, these examples are too obvious, actually. For example, you might be thinking, well, I don't post pictures of myself on Facebook when I give, when I'm writing out my check for offering, and I haven't updated my status for a really long time to say, yep, still fasting. But if we're not careful... For some of us, who may be more familiar with this, we could miss. We could miss out on the blessing of God of how this applies to our hearts and our lives in much more subtle ways than these examples are. I didn't misspeak here either. I think seeing where we're broken is actually a blessing from God. It's not fun to, to notice areas of your heart that you decide that's not right, I can't do it for that reason anymore. But actually, these teachings are meant to lead to life. So seeing that is actually a gift from God when he reveals it, areas of our life that need to change. Jesus' teaching is meant to lead to true reward. So does that mean that then we can't pray together like we just did in this room this morning? Or that we couldn't talk to others about fasting? No, it does not, to a point. The answer to that question gets at heart-level motivations and requires nuance for each one of us. Let's take the fasting example for a minute. Just flesh it out. So if you decided that you wanted to fast after hearing the sermon last week, 
one of the things that ought to happen is that you talk with the people that you live with about that. To let them know, hey, I'm going to be missing dinner tomorrow night, so just don't plan on me eating. To not do so would actually, I think, be rather unloving. Someone's expecting you to join them for dinner and you just don't. And they make something that you really like. So that'd be a great reason to talk to someone about fasting. Maybe you want to talk to a pastor about it. Get some direction, some instructions, and then give some feedback on how it went. Maybe you're talking with your gospel community or a small group about fasting together. Fasting with other people is an amazing gift and can be super life-giving. Those are all great reasons to talk about fasting with others. But here's the trouble. All of those could be ways of seeking praise from people. Notice that I said could be. They could also be done for all the right reasons. The answer depends on each individual. So part of the challenge that we all face in obeying Jesus' teaching about secrecy is that our internal sin detector can be quite erratic and inaccurate. When it comes to motives about why we did a certain thing, we don't always know what motivated us to act. And even when we think we know why we did something, we might be wrong. The human heart is not like a well-functioning smoke detector. A working smoke detector has one job to do. Sound the alarm when smoke is in the room. However, our hearts don't function that way when it comes to sin. We don't always detect the sin that's underneath our actions. And sometimes we work the other way where we detect sin where there actually isn't any false alarms. And here's the thing. If we took this teaching from Jesus and became absolutely consumed with ourselves, always asking, why did I do this or why didn't I do that? I think we end up falling into the very thing that Jesus is warning us about. In a subtle way, our own praise of ourselves, our own approval of our own actions becomes the reward for our good deeds. Our reward then is self-congratulation. Our attention ends up being like a boomerang that you throw out and then it just comes right back on yourself. Constant introspection and analyzing our motives will not lead us to a life of freedom and flourishing connected to Christ that we want. It's like planting carrots and then doing this, wondering how they're doing, and then trying to put them back in the ground. Checking on the growth totally short-circuits it for carrots, in case you guys don't know that. But it's hard to wait. But I think it's like that with our own hearts. If we're constantly checking, constantly wondering, was that motive right? Was this motive right? We're going to short-circuit what God is doing in us. So if our hearts are not always the best motive and sin detectors, what do we do then if we want to follow this teaching? Well, that's, that's where I think the, the intentional practice of secrecy has the potential to be so life-giving for us. We don't have to fully understand our motives or constantly analyze ourselves to grow in this teaching. Instead, we can simply take steps to begin practicing secrecy right before us. We can move forward asking God to transform us and renew us, trusting that He will, in His good, loving, and very gentle way, make us aware of the sin and the motive that needs to change in our hearts. I think the very act of practicing secrecy may be what He uses in many of us, to make us alert to something that's off. It's like when I go on my first bike ride in the spring, 
that's when I realize how much my fitness has slipped over the winter. I might have guessed before going on the first ride that, yeah, probably not in as good a shape as I was in the fall after a season of riding, but it's not until I actually get on the bike and start pedaling that I start suffering and realize something is off. I have not been riding like I intended to. In a similar way, we probably don't fully recognize the extent to which we, and again, these are subtle ways, do things for the approval of other people and miss out on something much greater. That's where this practice comes in. And as I've thought about secrecy this week and fasting last week and silence coming ahead here, I've become more convinced than ever that one of the most important things that any of us can get from these sermons is the conviction that these practices need to be actions that we take and actually practice in our lives to be truly understood and benefited from. Like with my bike example, it's the actual practice, it's the actual riding that made me aware of what needed to happen. And for these practices and disciplines that we're talking about, it's not the thought of practicing them or the intention of practicing them, but the actual practice, whether or not we consider it a success or not when we do it. That's how we position ourselves uniquely to experience an abiding life in Christ, the actual practice and dependence upon Him. And it's something much greater that we're after. Jesus said the exact same thing three different times in that Matthew 6 passage. He said, And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There's a promise there and there's a truth there. First, the truth. This is the truth. God sees and God knows. Every good deed done in secret and unknown to other people is known by God. That is the truth. We don't need to advertise it or promote it in order for it to be known. That simple truth combats a ton of lies that can go on inside of us. The lie is like, if I don't let others know this thing I've done, it's just going to be totally unknown and anonymous, and what's the point then? If I don't clarify that one more time in this conversation, I might be misunderstood. Or if I don't get the last word out in this argument, this conversation, they might think I lost the argument. But Jesus' teaching says otherwise. He's giving us knowledge here, factual knowledge about reality that has the potential to change how we live. God, the only one whose opinion matters and whose reward matters, he sees, he knows, and he takes notice. That's the truth. And the promise then from this sentence is that our Father in heaven will reward us. It's such a simple statement. It's just so clear. He will reward us. Theologian Scott McKnight commented on this verse that humans give us what we want whereas God gives us what is good and right. Humans give us what we want but God gives us what is good and right. The reward we get from him is what is good and will bring life to us and to other people. In the three places that we read where Jesus fleshes out this teaching, he doesn't actually say this is what the reward is. 
in those sorts of words. But we can infer from the Sermon on the Mount and the surrounding teachings that the reward that Jesus had in mind is God and being in and participating in his kingdom right now, experiencing his love and his power. It's God and his, his kingdom. To be clear, the reward is not salvation in the sense of earning a right relationship with God. We have that right relationship with God through Jesus and through Jesus alone. This reward could include things like greater sense of intimacy with God, stronger sense of his presence as we go about our daily activities, a freedom and joy of experiencing a heart that is being transformed increasingly into his image. And I would argue there's a satisfaction in being used by God to overcome evil in our spheres of influence, that that is also a reward. The practice of secrecy is meant to aid us in working out this truth and this promise into our lives. We intentionally take steps to experience it, to lean on it, that truth that God really sees and God really knows. Our dependence upon him will grow as we do that. Our confidence in his nearness will grow. Our prayer life will become richer and more intimate with him. We focus less on ourselves and more on him and other people. But the outcome of our practice of engaging in these things is up to God. It's in his hands and it's up to him what we experience. We can trust that he will give us, though, what is truly good and right for us in our life and in our situation. But what would it look like to practice this? What would it look like to begin building this into our lives in new ways? Well, the first thing I would suggest as a starting place could be just to look at those three examples that Jesus gave with giving and with prayer and with fasting and see if one of those, if there might be a way to engage in that in a new secret way that you hadn't experienced up until now. You might also think of other spiritual practices that you engage in in your life and think through, I wonder if there's a way I could practice this more secretively once in a while. It doesn't mean that it's always done that way. But then you could also think more outwardly as in service to other people, service to those that are around you. I got to experience this this winter. After a snowfall, one of my neighbors cleared my driveway in complete secret. I had no idea which one of my neighbors did it because they abstained from advertising their goodness to me. They served me in secret. And that example for me had an interesting impact on my heart. When I realized I didn't know who did it, I just know that it was done, and I felt really thankful, I had to do something with my thankfulness. In that case, my thankfulness just went vertical. I just went to God and I said, God, thank you for causing this person to be generous with their time and resources to help me. I think that's what he was getting at when he said, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory. Like, I was giving glory to God even though I didn't know who did this. This person brought him glory in that way. So I thank God and I trusted that he would bless that person who served our family. So this week I'd encourage you, pray. Ask God, what is one thing I could do for another person in secret? This could be a family member, a neighbor, a coworker. And you may need to take steps to actually make sure that the deed that you're going to do isn't known. Again, so long as it doesn't involve deceit or sin in some way as you do that. But then there's another angle on secrecy, another way of practicing it. 
is to choose to not make all of our needs known to other people. Choosing to not make all of our needs known to other people. Now, again, to clarify, making our needs known to other people is a good thing. That in itself is not a bad thing at all. But sometimes, in order to practice secrecy and experience that intimacy with God, you may choose to keep some of your needs between just you and God, and and you don't tell anyone else about them. Doing so puts us in a position to uniquely experience God's provision for us that only He knew about, and we can experience how He answers our prayers, and He knows. I'll give you an example from our family's life of what I mean by that. So many of you know that before we moved here a year and a half ago, we were missionaries serving college students on campuses. And our second year of being missionaries, we were about to start the school year, and we got the unfortunate word that our funding levels were not at a place that would allow us to keep going onto campus like we really wanted to give our lives to. Instead, we had to pull back and do some fundraising to get a very specific dollar amount that would then get us in a place to continue to live and, and eat and all those things that we needed to do. It was a blow. We were super disappointed. And so that news set us on a weeks of prayer and intentional conversations with friends, some with strangers, people that I um, got their phone number and I would just call and tell them about what God was doing. And we made some progress over those weeks, but we still had a good chunk of money that we needed to come up with to get back onto campus doing the thing we had moved there to do. And that was until a friend pulled up in our driveway, got out of her car and walked up to our door with a check, handed it to us, and we thanked her. She went on her way, and then I looked at it. And the amount was the exact amount that we needed, an amount that we had not advertised, we had not told anyone that was the amount we needed. It was an amount that I could not have imagined would come from one family. It was a sizable number. But here's the thing, again, the truth is that God knew. God noticed. And God moved in that family and they obeyed his voice and got us back to campus ministering and serving college students. That sort of experience has profoundly affected my soul and Jess's soul. We already trusted that God heard our prayers, that he could provide for us, but the secrecy of seeing a need met that only he knew about is transformative in a profound way. And that's what could happen if you would take a need once in a while and say, this one just needs to be between me and God. Now, you might notice that I have not touched practically on secrecy in our age of social media and virtual connections, but I am intentionally not doing that. Because there's usually not a one-size-fits-all answer when we talk about the practice of secrecy. It's meant to lead to deep, heart-level change and transformation, a goodness that goes way beyond the goodness of just an action. It's a goodness that's underneath the actions. Jesus taught us, we saw today, that a good deed done for the wrong reasons can be wrong. Right behavior flows out of a heart that is right. And I trust that as we seek to stay connected with Jesus, asking him for wisdom, he will, for each one of us, teach us, what does the practice of secrecy look like for me 
in all the ways that today we deal with very uniquely when it comes to advertising self to the world. He can teach us that. No one rule or principle is going to do it because it's about motivations. This life and this transformation, this connection with him is possible and it's ours only through the gospel. We need to be reminded of that every day, don't we? The gospel is why we have all of this. It's through the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus to the Father's right hand that the availability of a life with him is possible now, today, in this life. We have been forgiven. We have been cleansed of sin. We have received reconciliation with God and become adopted sons and daughters of his, all through his work through his son. We've been renewed and filled with the Holy Spirit. The verdict is in. The verdict is in. We are declared righteous, fully accepted by God. And it is only with those truths in mind of the gospel that we'll be able to actually practice secrecy in a way it's meant to be practiced. It's only with the gospel in mind that we will experience the bountiful reward that is promised to us. Because it's in the gospel that we're reminded our good works and our spiritual practices do not impress God. They don't earn us his favor. Practicing this diligently will not get him to hear your prayers in a new way. He does all of that because and through Jesus and Jesus alone. So from a position then of being a beloved son or daughter of God, we take steps, spirit-empowered steps, to practice this, and then we experience the rewards that are promised. Again, those rewards are God's prerogative. We don't control the outcomes, but we can faithfully practice depending on him, and we can trust that he will give us what is truly right and good for each one of us. This morning, we get to take communion together. When we eat the bread and when we drink the cup together, we proclaim and remember Jesus' death on the cross for us. The bread and the cup are a visible proclamation of the gospel that our hearts can feed on and be strengthened by as we take it. Through the life, death, resurrection of Christ, all who come to faith in him are reconciled to God and can experience this life of abiding in the vine, transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of Christ, glorious light and life. We'll start with the bread. The Lord Jesus, on the night which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And now the cup. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Father, we need our hearts to be nourished by the gospel this morning. Would you do that even in these moments 
Would you nourish us with the reminder of what we have in you and the availability of a life with you that really is beyond what we could imagine? God, I do pray that you would stir in each one of us as we think about these practices, fasting and secrecy so far, would you stir in us the ways in which it's right for us to practice? Or would you lead us to what is truly life-giving and transforming? Help our lives to orbit around Christ and to be calibrated to his ways. We trust that you can do that and that Christ has done everything that's necessary for that. We pray in his name as we worship him. Amen.